Well, amen. Thank you, Tim and the worship team. Powerful worship this morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. It's page 851. Where we'll be starting off from, I believe, this morning. Um, it's good to be back. Last weekend, uh, two fellow elders, uh, Brian Cabot, Peter Davies, joined me uh, in Washington, D.C. for a church leadership conference um, put on by an organization called Nine Marks, and uh, it, was, it was amazing. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant for the entire weekend, and a um, lot to process, but really just a fruitful time of being equipped in ways to lead and shepherd the local church, and really just hammering down that uh, God's answer to make disciples of all nations is primarily through the local church. And uh, so it affirmed uh, some things that I think we are doing, uh, that we should keep doing. It definitely exposed some weak spots in um, our ministry that, by God's grace, we'll be working through. Um, but again, just a really strong doubling down that uh, we, we need healthy churches. We want to be a healthy church. We want to play a part in helping other churches be healthy that is going to stand strong on the authoritative word of God. And not apologize for that and not try to drift away from that, but that is where we find the beautiful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, just for me as a pastor, kind of navigating in ministry to just uh, be reaffirmed that we are about substance over style here at Grace Church. And we're about the message over the method. And it's not that styles and methods don't matter, but they cannot hold the candle to the message that uh, we have in God's word. And so um, it was a joy to be able to be down there. Spend a few days with Brian and Peter, just grateful for them. I mean, they're, they're taking vacation time from their jobs um, to come on and uh, enjoy me down there in the Capitol. Um, and I would just be lying if I didn't say that it was also pretty nice to have consecutive nights sleep <laughs> for the entire night and appreciate my bride being fully supportive of this trip. Had her mother fly in for 10 days to help hold down the fort. Um, but I'll be honest, for, for the moms and dads here who travel for work, I need like some tips on how to like call home and not just feel completely guilty all the time. And, and I think FaceTime has made this worse because now you can see it. Like I see the exhaustion on her face. There's like a kid hanging on her. I think there's a baby in the other room crying. And, and then somehow I'm the one who's like, well, I best be going now. It's... We got a real full day tomorrow, a lot, um, and she's uh, more gracious than me, because if I heard that, I'd be like, oh, really? Yeah? You got a lot of meetings tomorrow? Yeah, I'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> she did not do that, clarify. I probably would, but um, now that that impromptu confessional is done, we can move forward with the sermon. Um, but love that Jason Remind was here last week uh, from Restore Church in North Halden to faithfully fill the pulpit and uh, preached from a book not named Mark, uh, which I hope you enjoyed because that was a very brief break, brief break because now we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Um, but believe it or not, we are down to the final five sermons in this Gospel um, that we began in January 2018, and Lord willing, um, we will finish with the resurrection passage in Mark chapter 16 on Easter Sunday. And uh, I distinctly remember, it was sometime in the fall of 2017 when I was starting to map out what the series was going to look like and get the passages with different dates, uh, knowing when we're going to be away, when we're going to break for a vision series. Um, and, and I remember sitting in my office and getting to the final date and seeing we're going to finish in Easter Sunday 2019. And at the time, it felt just like so far ancient into the future. And I remember sitting there being like, there's no chance this actually happens this way. Like, it's going to get derailed at some point. But 
By God's grace, we are five weeks away, getting close. Um, April 21st, Easter Sunday, uh, we're going to be having two services that day, 9, 11, and 9 a.m., 11 a.m., uh, so don't come at 10 a.m. You'll either be very late or very early. Um, and on that note, you'll see in your bulletin, we still have just some needs for some uh, nursery workers for those two services. We do not schedule that day. We would like to just have volunteers uh, who, who are available. The benefit of two services is that you can uh, serve in a service and not miss uh, Easter Sunday in the service either. So the specific numbers that we still need are listed there. Uh, I would love if we could just knock that out as soon as possible, and so we could stop asking you. And um, so if you are willing to step up and serve on that Sunday in one of those services, just shoot Mary an email in the office, um, or you can jot it on a connection card, bring it back to Grace Connect at the end. Well, we're going to be finishing Mark 14. It's the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in it for several weeks, and we're going to finish it this morning. Uh, If you remember two weeks ago now, we saw uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested, uh, the clash of kingdoms, and and from here, the, the sheer speed of how things will develop from arrest to indictment to sentencing to crucifixion, it is a downright mistreatment of justice. And in this passage, we're going to see an affirmation, and then we're going to see a denial, and then we're going to close our time together, kind of tying together the two. And my just hope is that our affections for Christ will be stirred as we read and unpack his word this morning. So follow along as I read Mark 14. We're picking up in verse 53, and we'll start by going to verse 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, And the guards received him with blows. First, we see Jesus' affirmation. Jesus' affirmation. So, uh, just to understand a little bit the misjustice carried out here, uh, we need to just zero in on how ridiculous this court proceeding really was. First off, at this point, it's the middle of the night, Thursday going into Friday, probably somewhere around 2 to 3 a.m., 
Uh, the Last Supper was Thursday evening. They went, went to the Mountain of Olives where Jesus prayed for three hours. He was arrested, brought back to Jerusalem. So we are well after midnight at this point. And according to Jewish law, night trials were forbidden. Also, trials like this did not take place during a time of festival. It was Passover week. They did not do trials during Passover week because of how busy things were. So they would always delay it. But now they're doing it in the middle of the night on Passover week. Also, capital punishment trials would only take place in the temple courts. But this takes place in the upper room of the high priest's home. It's a man named Joseph Caiaphas. And it doesn't even stop there. If there, was a, if there was a conviction for capital punishment, the law stated that they would have to wait an extra day before moving forward to get approval from the Roman governor just to ensure, okay, we just condemned a guy to death. Let's just take a day to breathe. Let's just ensure this was a fair trial, that we didn't rush anything. And they won't do that here because the problem was the next day was the Sabbath. So that means that they were going to have to wait multiple days to actually ensure and carry this forward. And they know if they waited this long, it wouldn't happen. So if you compile all the events that happened according to all the different Gospels, Mark doesn't um, record all the proceedings, uh, but Jesus will receive six hearings, three with the Jews, three with Roman authorities, in the span of 12 hours. Think about that. If you stayed up and watched March Madness last night and you went to bed at midnight... By the time you got out of here and started eating lunch, just in that span, Jesus will have received six hearings and gone from arrest to crucifixion. And it just exposes how desperate the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body of the high priests, was to get rid of Jesus. And it's a clear picture that that this governing body did not really care about the law. They cared about power. Jesus was a threat to their rule and reign, to their control, and they were willing to do whatever it took to kill him, even if it meant breaking the very laws they were supposed to protect. So it's kind of a side note for any of our leaders in the room, okay? If you're a leader in your home, if you're a leader in this church, um, at your job, if you're a leader in the community, the best leaders are the ones who use their power to form and shape a culture of servanthood with themselves as chief servant. And we want our leaders, whether um, in Washington, D.C., in Grace Church, in your home, we want the best leaders to lead justly, to not prioritize, to lead justly. And it's so rare now because when you get into power, it's so enticing to do whatever you need to do to keep the power, even if it means breaking the very law you were put into that place to uphold. And so here we are. I want to see leaders who lead from the front, not from the back. And and it's easier said than done because it's easier to lead from the back and you just go that way, you go that way, I'm going to pull the strings, but instead of leading from the front, and my prayer for our elders here at Grace Church that we would just be faithful in leading from the front. Be chief servants. And so they are at Caiaphas' home. It's it's the high priest and the entire 71-person Sanhedrin is present at this midnight hearing, which is insane. There's no reason these guys would be up in the middle of the night, but here they all are, all 71 of them. And they were seeking witnesses against Jesus, just enough to put a charge on him to put him to death. And they need two witnesses. It tells them in the Old Testament they need two witnesses. This is the custom. Two witnesses that would agree on a charge. And they can't even get it. 
You see what Mark said in those verses? He goes, and they found none. And the reason is because there was none. And so you have different people kind of standing up and, and laying forth accusations, but then somebody else stands up and they contradict that accusation and they try to make their own accusation and they're just falling over themselves showing just how ill-prepared and fast this trial has become. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, is kind of watching all this and he's getting frustrated because this is their chance. they got to put him away and they can't even find two people to agree on a charge to sentence him. And so he stands up and he goes right to Jesus, who is just standing there silent. And he goes, well, what are you going to do, Jesus? A lot of stuff getting thrown your way here. A lot of accusations. What, what do you have to say about that? And he remains silent. No answer. It's a powerful picture, if you can get it in your mind. The strength of silence in the face of anger. You know, when I was um, really studying this passage and writing this sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, it was the same day that a clip of Gail King's interview with R. Kelly was released. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen. It's a little faded, but raise your hand if you've seen this picture before in the last couple weeks. Raise it up high. Say about maybe 40, 50%. This um, R. Kelly, very famous musical artist, hip-hop artist, he'd been accused of, um, with these kind of strong mountains of evidence by several women of sexual abuse, of manipulating women for years. And during this interview, Gail King, works for CBS, is just asking him questions. He begins to flip out. Like in the midst of his answering, he can't contain his anger, and so he stands up and just loses it on set, looking at the camera just angry. And, and this image comes out that quickly went viral because you know in this picture, who's the strong one? It's not the grown man acting like a child. It's Gail King, stoic and calm in the face of anger. And in this passage, Caiaphas is just getting angry and he's getting aggressive and he's starting to act like a child and Jesus' silence speaks volumes. And in doing so, Jesus fulfills the verse in Isaiah 53. It's a famous chapter in the Old Testament that prophesies the coming Messiah and it says in 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Listen, yet he opened not his mouth. And so this makes Caiaphas feel disrespected. Man, when the high priest asks you a question, you answer. And Jesus didn't say anything. That's disrespectful. So he, he kind of amps up the energy. He goes, are you the Christ? The son of the blessed? Just the tragic irony of him confessing who Jesus is. Not even knowing it. The extent of it. And this time, Jesus will answer. And he'll do so calmly. But his words are explosive. Let me read him again. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this single line is like the equivalent of a dam breaking and a sea of water coming rushing through. If you've been with us throughout this series, we have seen all throughout Mark, Jesus was very careful to keep this concealed. 
He banned the evil spirits who confessed it early in the gospel from telling anyone. They were the first ones to kind of know who he was, and he banned them from telling anyone. He told his disciples who confessed it in the middle of the gospel from telling anyone. And it's not until here, at the end, when he is on trial for his life, that he decides, okay, now it's time. So think about this. It's at his trial. It's an unjust trial where an affirmation would surely mean his downfall. And yet, when questioned to his face by an angry chief priest, He affirms it in full, and his words are precisely intentional. I am. If you know your Bible, you know that is one of the most powerful phrases connected to God all throughout Scripture. All the way back to Exodus chapter 3, the second book of the Bible, when, when God appointed this man named Moses to go into Egypt and free his people from Pharaoh, about 1.5 million men, women, and children, Just go in there, the most powerful leader in the nation, tell him, I'm taking my people out. Moses had some questions. (laughs) Biggest question was, okay, they're going to want to know which God you are. There's a lot of gods out there, a lot to choose from. I need to know your name if I can go and release them. So he says, what's your name? And God says, tell them, I am sent me to you. He goes, I don't need a name. I'm not one God amongst many gods. I am the God who is. Before anything was, I am. And Jesus now applies this phrase to himself, which is beyond the answer the high priest was even looking for, because all the Jews at this time expected the Christ, the Messiah, would just be a man. It'd be a man um, appointed as a king, like David was, like Solomon was. But Jesus goes, not only am I the Messiah, I'm God. And in case he didn't catch that, Jesus takes it a step further to make it crystal clear by claiming to be the Son of Man, first spoken about in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Father, who will return on the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And everyone in Israel, especially Caiaphas, would know Daniel 7. It's a hot spot in the Bible, a prophecy everybody knew about. One speaking of an eternal king who would come back to judge the world. So picture in your mind what Jesus just said to the high priest's face. You're judging me right now. But one day, I'll be back. And on that day, I'll be in the judge's seat and you will answer to me. I am. And you won't be able to stop the certain victory and return of Christ any more than you can stop the sun from rising in the morning. And now we understand Caiaphas' response of just white-hot anger. He tears his garments. He basically says, we don't even need another witness. You all just heard that. Blasphemy. And the Sanhedrin looks on and they condemn him to death. And from here, this trial just turns shameful. It turns into a riot. And they began spitting in his face. Man, I don't care if it's 1st century or 21st century. There's nothing more disrespectful than somebody spitting in your face. Like, nobody's handling that well. The most disrespectful thing you could do to someone, and then they blindfold him, and they start striking him like cowards. And then the Roman guards get hold of him, because remember, they have to now take him to the governor to get approval of this capital punishment. And so they join in on the fun, and they begin beating him as well. And from here, Mark will 
starkly contrasts this powerful affirmation now with a denial. Let's keep reading. Let's finish the chapter. Mark 14, 66 to 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Following Jesus' affirmation, we immediately get Peter's denial. Um, For those who weren't here, or maybe you've forgotten, just a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus predicted to Peter that he was going to deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice. And do you remember Peter's response to that? He's like, no way! Not me! Maybe some of these other weak guys around you. I've always wondered about them. But Jesus, me and you, brother, I'm not going anywhere. I will never do that. I'll never deny you. And then in the garden, Peter cuts off a man's ear when Jesus gets arrested. And we're not told what happened from there. Somehow he managed to slip away. But now he is the only one who follows Jesus. And the officers back to Jerusalem to the high priest's house. He's below the home in the courtyard, keeping warm by a fire. And at this point, you might start to think, man, Peter's kind of backing up his word. He is still here. He did try and fight. Maybe he is standing for Christ when no one else will. But one confronted by a servant of the high priest who kind of saw him, gives him a little bit of a longer look and goes, you were, you were with him earlier. I've seen you with Jesus. And he goes, nope. I don't know what you're talking about. Second time, this time the girl is around some others, and she kind of says before them, goes, you know, I'm pretty sure this is one of the guys. I'm pretty sure I've seen him with them. Peter, again, quick, nope. I don't know what you're talking about. No idea what you're talking about. And then the bystanders to whom the girl said something, they kind of keep their eyes on him, and he's by the fire, and they're kind of wondering, and then finally, eventually, somebody says, no, you were, you're definitely with him. You're Galilean, where he's from. I'm pretty sure you've You're in his crew, and this sets him off. And now he's the one getting angry, much like Caiaphas, and he swears on himself, I don't know this man. Nothing to do with him. It's a moment that stands in stark contrast to the passage just before where Jesus silently, powerfully, calmly affirms who he is, and now Peter angrily denies him. This brother first fell asleep three times in the garden. Now he denies Christ three times in the courtyard. The rooster crows a second time, and it hits Peter. And he immediately breaks down 
And he weeps over his own weakness, over his own inability to stand for Christ when given the opportunity. But you know what's interesting? Mark omits the most excruciating detail of this moment. It's a detail that Luke includes in his account in Luke chapter 22. Listen to this after the third denial, what Luke writes. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, listen, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Somehow they were situated, maybe while Jesus was on the stand, maybe while he was being spit on, but they somehow got into each other's line of sight. And Jesus turns right after he denies him a third time and locks eyes with Peter. Can you imagine that moment? And it hits him. And the flood of emotion pours over him and he just loses it right there. Third, we had the affirmation. We see the denial, and now the atonement. If we were to stop right there and say, Jesus was strong, Peter was weak, church, go be more like Jesus and less like Peter. Amen, sermon over, let's close in prayer. Like, granted, you would get a shorter sermon, all right? Like, that'd be the one benefit, okay? But that would be a mis service to you because the whole point in this passage is given to us by Jesus putting these two events back to back. And this never really clicked for me until you really just go through, like I've always kind of read Peter's denial in um, isolation to everything around it. And that's the danger of just reading one passage. You, you, You might be able to get some points from it, but you can't get the real depth of what an author is saying unless you just walk through his entire work verse by verse. And this clicked for me while reading a single line of a commentary written by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson um, regarding Peter's viewpoint. Listen to this. Quote, That look from Jesus was to be his salvation. For he saw in those eyes not condemnation but compassion. That was the turning point in his life. The look of compassion, not condemnation. The look that doesn't say, I can't believe you denied me, traitor. Told you. But the look that says, brother, I know you denied me. And I forgive you for that. That's why I'm here. That's why I stayed silent. That's why I'm moving forward. And it's this picture of Jesus' affirmation covering Peter's denial. He was silent before Caiaphas so that on that day when the accuser comes to call out Peter, he goes, do you remember Peter in the courtyard? Do you remember how he denied you, how weak he was? Then Jesus won't have to be silent any longer, but instead he can come in and go, no, I paid for that. That sin was atoned for. That accusation doesn't stick to him any longer. He's forgiven, he's loved, he's cleaned. I paid for that. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel in very dramatic form. Jesus' strength paying for Peter's weakness. And so Peter breaking down and weeping is not just shame. 
It's the moment that God opened his eyes to who Christ is and what he's come to do. And that he came for his sin. Not just sin in general, all those other people who need it. His sin. And despite his sin, which is real, Jesus loves him still. Here's why we need to hear this. Because if we're honest, the reason we grimace while reading Peter's denial is not just because we feel bad for Peter, but because we often see ourselves in his actions all too clearly. It's an all too common moment when you go to read the word and it ends up reading you. And the unspoken reality that many people walk in at varying levels, believers, that believers walk in on varying levels is the haunting feeling that Jesus is just disappointed with you. Where we think that he thinks that we should be further along by now. Like you're still dealing with that, really? All these years later, still struggling? And we just think it's condemnation. And we think that he's just disappointed in our progress and our maturity in the faith and that, and that our faith should be more evident. And, and overall, we're just a big disappointment in God's eyes as, as well in the eyes of other Christians. And we're just waiting for the looks of condemnation, waiting for the looks that say, I can't believe you. And many walk through life silently shaming themselves more than anyone else does, where it gets to this weird place where they're great at extending grace to others, but never extend that same grace to themselves. And so we're anxious, and we're tired, and we're on this treadmill where we're always running but never getting anywhere. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you feel the weakness of your own flesh, and you battle with doubt as to whether you can hang on another day, another month, I just want you to hear me. Jesus is not disappointed with you. There's not some future level of maturity where then he begins to love you or accept you. That he loves you right now as you are. And he does not wait for you to grow. He is the reason you grow. And the same grace that saved us will sustain us to completion. And so so right now, like today, if you believe in him, right now you're an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. And so I, I want to be clear, I have to be clear, like sin is a big deal. Jesus looking at Peter is not like, don't worry about it, buddy, not a big deal. It's not what he's saying. He really denied Christ out of sinful fear of man. He did, like he did, he was guilty. But Jesus locking eyes with him in that moment shows us that when we sin, we are free to run toward him in forgiveness as opposed to away from him in shame. Peter's guilt, as we see throughout the scriptures, does not lead to just shame. It leads to conviction. It leads to repentance, which brings about restoration and forgiveness. You know, the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is not that one's a sinner and one is not. It's that a Christian's sin towards them, toward Christ, where we receive mercy and forgiveness and we are granted the power to repent. And as we live in that truth, our growth and our maturity, you know what, it's always going to be slower than we want it to be. We're always going to compare ourselves to somebody else who's on a faster track than we are. And we're going to have setbacks. But Jesus, the great shepherd, will never abandon the weak sheep. 
in the year 1630, um, there was a man named Richard Sibbs, and he wrote a little book called The Bruised Reed. It's about 60 pages long. It's a balm for the soul, like water for the thirsty. I think everyone should read it, but especially for those who are struggling in their faith, buy a few, hand some out. The Bruised Reed, Richard Sibbs. And the whole book is off, based off Jesus quoting Isaiah 22, which says of the Messiah, I'll have it on the screen, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Listen, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus will not abandon those weak in the faith. And Sibs dives deep into these verses that brings just peace to the soul. And my favorite line in the whole book near the end is this, quote, See a flame in a spark. See a tree in a seed. See great things in little beginnings. This is why Jesus has come. This is what his affirmation affirms, that he will not let you go. And over time, he will fan that spark into a flame once again, and that flame into a fire, and that fire into an inferno of worship and devotion towards him. So if you can resonate with the weakness of Peter's faith in Mark 14, let me just show you a glimpse of his future. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested, and they're brought before the high priest, the same high priest that Jesus was brought before, And Caiaphas is going to tell them, stop preaching the way of Jesus Christ. We killed that guy. He's gone. This is illegal what you're doing. He's dead. He never rose from the dead. Stop what you're doing. And and listen to what Peter and John say. Verse 18, Acts 4. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Church, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so I don't know where you're at in the faith journey or where you see yourself in Peter's story. Maybe you're Peter on the way to the garden where there's prideful boasts of like, this will never be me. God loves me. I'll never disappoint him. Maybe others, but not me. Or maybe you were in a place of humbled brokenness in the courtyard where you feel the weight of your own sin and see the grace of Jesus looking back at you. Or perhaps by God's grace, you have experienced that renewed courage that he shows before the council in Acts 4. But regardless of where you are, keep your eyes fixed on Christ, and he will move you along, one step at a time. James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So if you're in here and you've never made the decision to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ for forgiveness, that is the call on your life. To look upon Jesus and experience the gracious gaze of our Savior looking back at you where he atones for your sin and grants you new life. And for those who do believe, we are called and able to daily utilize the ordinary means of grace that God puts in our life. 
to keep our eyes fixed on him. The grace of his word. The grace of prayer. The grace of a community of faith. Man, I'll say it over and over again. I don't just want you to attend this church. I love that you're here, but I want you to be part of this church. I love watching March Madness. You know what? It was much more fun playing. It's much more fun being part of something than just watching something. And so I can never stop you from just attending and not getting involved. I just want you to be as uncomfortable as possible to do so. <laughs> and, and, and it's just such a joy in getting in the mess of, of, of church membership. Because what membership is, is not just the logistical things. We get the votes and do this and that. It's where we covenant with one another to help one another follow Jesus, to persevere, to not be led astray. So the author of Hebrews means when he says, don't be like those who neglect to meet together, but rather encourage one another as the day draws near. And that day is with a capital D. The day when Christ, the I am, returns on the clouds of heaven and we all, like Caiaphas, will stand before him in judgment. And those who do not believe will be judged for their sin, rightly found guilty as all is laid bare. But for those who put their faith in Christ, those whose sin is atoned for by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you will not be put to shame. But rather you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.